the Master Tavern Keeper's History of the Old World. brandishing a scythe, no less. Fortunately, I was a much slimmer man than I am now, and I was able to leap through her bedroom window and land in the cart of manure he'd just left outside. Kismet, eh? That's the happiest I've been to be neck deep in the stuff, I can tell you. Anyway, fortunately for me, a naked man covered in wild stegodon dung is not an unusual sight on the streets of Skeggy, and I was able to return to old Goldbeard's without any further incident. Ah, Heinrich, welcome back. Ah, uh, yeah, yeah, I'm back again, back again, jiggity jog. We'll come back to the rest of that story another time, Neophytes. So, Heinrich, let's get to it then. I'm eager to learn about the sea battle between Vegira the Sacrificer and Marco Colombo, especially since it was in the wake of the mutiny of two-thirds of the Tylean's men. Ah, yeah, most certainly. But uh, first, perhaps you'd like to explain a little about who Vegir the Sacrificer was for the uh, young neophytes. I doubt their ears have heard the tales of his nefarious exploits. Ah, uh, yes indeed. That's a good point. I got a bit ahead of myself there. Apologies, neophytes. Well, back during the 1480s, the Sea of Claws was terrorised by a bloodthirsty, piratical Norse Jarl known as Vergir the Sacrificer, a malicious follower of the Norse god Karnath. Vergir earned his moniker from his penchant for beheading his enemies, using them to construct large pyramids of skulls, and then dedicating them to his thrice-be-cursed blood god. He was a fearsome fighter, but not a canny warrior. In fact, a very old Norseman I knew, who'd actually met him, described him as an oaf. Very dangerous and belligerent, but a bit of a dullard nonetheless. Anyway, Vergir idolised the ancient champion of his god, the infamous Cormac Blood Axe, and wished to emulate his rise to power. As soon as he was strong enough to wield an axe, Vergir began on his path to lead his clan, following in Cormac's footsteps. By the time he was a young man, he was already the leader of an impressive cohort of villains, who soon began raiding along the coasts of Nordland and Ostland. His blood-drenched raids caused a shiver of fear to run down the spine of the Empire, but rather than paralysing his prey with fear, as he had hoped, it elicited the swift mobilisation of his enemies against him, and they quickly moved to defend their shores. In short, he was a victim of his own early success. The easy pickings he'd been attacking soon grew slim, leaving only the more powerful ports and settlements on the coast for him to attack. However, although he had by this point assembled a small fleet of wolf ships, he still lacked the raw manpower to take on any large, well-defended settlements. In essence, he needed more men. 
and he found the answer to his quandary in the tale of his hero, Cormac Bloodaxe. It was the wrong answer, but it was all he could come up with. This uh, idea of his drew him east to the lands we now call Kislev, and here he clashed with a now near-extinct tribe known as the Ropsmen. His plan was to add them to his forces, much as the ancient Norse had done, and then return to the northern shores of the Empire and begin besieging the coastal settlements. Now, before we go any further, has anyone heard of the Ropsmen? Ah, the sound of silence. And I'm seeing a lot of shaking heads. I guess that's a big no then. That needs to be remedied. Well, they were once one of the founding tribes of the Empire. However, they had been banished soon after it had been established and left to wander the lands north of Kislev, that unforgiving, frigid region known as Troll Country before they eventually drifted south again to take control of the eastern shores of the Sea of Claws. To understand why Vegir was so desperate to recruit the Ropsmen to his banner, you will need to understand the tale of Cormac Bloodaxe and the role that the Ropsmen played in that story. So, if you don't mind Heinrich, I'm just going to take this opportunity to give a little background on them, as their tragic and bloody tale really explains why. Vegir ended up making his near-fatal error of judgment. Ah, yeah, yeah. By all means, Master Tavernkeeper. As ever, I am all ears. Ah, thank you. Well, young neophytes, the Robsmen are no longer with us. Perhaps apart from a few diehards out near the northern wastes. But, so as to not leave you adrift and rudderless, I will give your mind's eye something to behold and latch onto. Everyone... Please, close your eyes and picture this. The old stories describe the Ropsmen as a powerful clan of warriors. They wore patterned cloaks of green and red and used to shave their heads, apart from two spots in front of their ears, from which they grew long braids. Their warriors were typically armoured in padded jerkins and chainmail, although the more elite wore iron hauberks and bronze helms. They are usually depicted as wielding either a scimitar or a double-edged sword in one hand and a wooden buckler in the other. Now, imagine a horde of these screaming, blood-curdling war cries as they charge at you from across the frozen tundra. These are the Ropsmen of which we speak. Right, you can open your eyes now. Now. I first encountered the stories of the Ropsen in the Norse sags I heard on my old whaling ship, the Haval Drepper. Mysteriously, they had been omitted from the imperial history books I studied in my youth. When you hear the grave wrong done to them, though, then perhaps you'll understand why. The Ropsmen lived and fought against the old tribes of the Norsei, the ancient name for those we now call the Norse, as well as the other main tribe in the Reich Basin, the Eudoses. The old tale stated that, before the blossoming of the Empire of Men, the Norsai, too, became unified under the leadership of a single warrior king. Seven years before the start of the imperial calendar, 
the Norsai had suffered a horrendous defeat at the hands of the other human tribes that went on to constitute the nascent empire and had been driven up north across the sea to the land we now call Norska. Those that were not able to flee had been slaughtered and amongst the dead was the man who had led them, the High King, the Unifier, Varag, Skulltaker. Skulltaker had led the Norse in their attempt to wrest control of the lands near them from the other tribes, and he was doing a very good job of it. He had personally slain untold numbers during the siege of Halgorvik, seat of King Wulfiller of the Eudoces tribe. But this siege had been broken by Wulfiller's allies from the south, led by the Umbarogan king, Bjorn. The Norsei eventually found themselves surrounded by their enemies, and a battle of bloody attrition followed. In the maelstrom of combat, Varag launched himself at the man who had thwarted his plans, King Bjorn of the Umbarogan. Varag's cursed sword rung against Bjorn's blessed axe as the two kings fought. The Norsai's red plate, turning the blows of his opponent's axe away again and again. However, eventually the onslaught was too much for the Norsai warlord and Bjorn beheaded the Scion of Chaos with a king-slaying chop. Varag's skulltaker's armoured huskurls immediately fell upon the exhausted Umbarogan king and hacked him to death with their double-handed axes, tearing him to bloody ribbons like a pack of wolves. The Norsai, however, still persisted in the lands of the Odoses, though, and Bjorn's son, Sigmar, driven by the thirst for revenge, led his armies against the leadless Norse that were besieging the castle of Salzanus, throwing them back much as his father had done. King Wulfilla was impressed and forged an alliance with the young king, and together they forced the Norsai back to the Sea of Claws. Here, their wolf ships lay on the beaches of their ancient settlements, but there was to be no escape from Sigmar's pogrom. The Umbarogan war machines destroyed their boats and the Norsei were trapped and slaughtered like wild animals caught in a forest fire and their ancestral villages too were razed to the ground. However, a contingent did manage to escape and they fled east up through the land we now call Kislev. Here they encountered the Ungols but were not waylaid by the horsemen. They then tore through the chaos wastes before finally settling in the land we now call Norska, bloodily subjugating the indigenous tribes of wild humans, feral beastmen and nomads from the Kurgan tribes of the eastern steppe. Varag's son, Cormac Bloodaxe, the chieftain of the Iron Wolves clan and foremost champion of the Norse blood god, swore revenge, and he became fixated on the newly ascendant empire, in particular the Umbarogans and their young king, Sigmar Heldenhammer, the man who had been at the fore of the slaughter of the Norsai as they retreated. Cormac's burning heart of hatred was like a beacon amongst the broken tribes of the Norsai. It drew many to him, and he amassed a massive horde. He clad himself in his father's red, chaos plate, 
drew up his demonic burning axe, forged by his father's shaman, Cora Dason, and began his preparations to lead his people once more to war. Cormac, just like Vigir centuries later, began by taking to the seas on his kingship and led a Norsai armada of wolfships on a series of vicious raids against the northern coast of the empire, primarily targeting the Ropsmen, who are now living on the ancestral lands of the Norsai. They butchered whole communities and burnt their settlements to ashes. The Ropsmen fought back, but could not stand against the numbers and sheer feral ferocity of the Norsai, and eventually capitulated. On the advice of Carl Dason, a man who had actually cancelled both his father and grandfather before him, Cormac did not simply put the entire people to the sword, though. Instead, they took their women and elderly and held them to ransom. With this, they were able to extract a season's worth of servitude from the menfolk of the Ropsmen, and they were pressed into joining the Norsai Horde. And so, in the ninth year of the Imperial Calendar, the Norsai and their new Ropsmen allies began to ravage the settlements of the Odoses tribe. The direct ancestors of the rugged Oslanders, by the way. Ah, yeah. No wonder the dark and dreary folk of Ostland are so untrusting. Honestly, it is easier to get blood from a stone troll than a smile from an Ostlander. Of course. Ostland lies just to the east of your birthplace of Nordland. Did you rub shoulders with many Ostlanders then? Yeah, yeah, they're a very stubborn lot, which is fine, but uh, they take it to an extreme. They never back down, even if shown to be in the wrong. It is as if a uh, flexible approach to life is a sign of weakness for them. And uh, this extends to their uh, well-known thriftiness as well. They take it to such a degree that uh, they turn it, the virtue into a vice. You have probably heard the song The Stone Soup of Ostland, yeah? <laughs> oh, indeed. The proud men of Ostland don't need your bread nor meat. They boil up stones to make their soup and it's all they ever eat. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> that's the one. Everyone jokes that Ostlanders do indeed live on stone soup, but to do so with but a single stone. Waste not, want not, as they say. Indeed, they are so loath to waste anything in any form that their homes are full of crates of rubbish. Bits boxes, they call them. Because uh, you just don't know when that broken knife might come in handy. <sighs> so, so. Ah, excuse my little rant. Uh, please continue, Master Tavernkeeper. Ah, no, no, it's fine. But you're, you're not wrong. Even when they were known as the Odoses, they were regarded as mulish. For example, when Sigmar called the tribes to arms at the Great Moot before the Battle of Blackfire Pass, it took him a whole three days of constant argument to convince Wolfilla, the chieftain of the Odoses, to join them. Ah, uh, yeah, yeah. The places, times, and names may change, but uh, people always remain the same. Indeed. 
Our consistency is both one of our greatest strengths and one of our most exploitable weaknesses. And uh, speaking of weaknesses, mine has run dry. Who could uh, pour me another?